You don't you don't have a system of uh, hand signals set up with your, yeah, your yeah, team? Like, Which day is yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like get me out of here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, minister has to go. We have a very important meeting. This is Van Collar. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I am joined by perhaps the most high-profile guest to grace the podcast thus far. Full disclosure, I am a fan of this person. In one of my very first episodes with Netflix comedian Ivan Decker, I openly said that this man would be a dream guest for me, and he is here. He obtained his law degree from Dalhousie University. He worked at Pivot Legal Society for five years in Vancouver's downtown east side. He was the executive director of the BC Civil Liberties Association. He's been an adjunct professor at the University of British Columbia, and he has also served as the president of the Canadian HIV AIDS Legal Network. First elected to the Legislative Assembly of British Columbia in 2013 by defeating Premier Christy Clark, representing the riding of Vancouver Point Grey, he is the Minister of Justice and the Attorney General of British Columbia. He is David E.B. Mr. E.B., how are you, sir? Hello, Mo. Hi. <laughs> glad to be here. I'm glad to have you and here. You had Ivan Decker on the show? I'm a huge fan. I did. Yeah. Yeah. When he was on, I said, he was a dream guest for me, and I said, the other dream guest is you. Yeah, he's fantastic. <laughs> Congratulations on the baby, by the way. Thanks. Yeah, we're still in the thick of it. It's exciting times at our house. You look a lot more well-rested than I was anticipating. It must be the yoga, right? Yeah, no, it's actually just an amazing partner. My wife uh, is uh, is doing a lot of heavy lifting to allow me to continue working the pace, and, <laughs> and uh, so yeah, we uh, we have an unfair setup. I try to pull my weight as much as possible, but being in Victoria, you know. Well, well, kudos to her. She's got you looking fresh and ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Her, on the other hand, I'm sorry, Kaylee. Thank you. I love you. You're the best. <laughs> Let's get right into it. There was an exchange in the BC Legislature recently. It was between you and now fellow This Is Van Culler alumnus, BC Liberal leader, Andrew Wilkinson. And as a political enthusiast, I loved it. It was a lot of drama. Wilkinson accused you, and these are his words, of flagrant incompetence. And he said that the premier should find a new attorney general. And then you dropped that amazing line about the former transportation minister not having the stones to ask you a question. Great double entendre. You were funny. You were razor sharp. And all of this was happening amidst raucous heckling. And then a few days later, I saw that another This Is Van Color alumnus, BC Housing Minister Selena Robinson, was getting drowned out by heckling during question period. And it got to a point that even I, someone who loves the drama and sometimes even the, the pettiness of it, it just didn't sit well with me. And I think that even if someone disagrees with her, she deserves more respect than she was being given at that question period. I'm genuinely curious. How much of this is kabuki theater? Because it seems like the decorum of the BC legislature is deteriorating. And you're well aware that people in this province are not watching QP, but I think they'd be shocked at how poorly behaved some of our elected officials can be representing their community in the BC legislature? That's a really good question. So um, when I was 
first elected in 2013, there was an independent member of the legislature named Vicki Huntington. Mm-hmm. And she brought forward a motion to uh, eliminate applause and desk thumping in the legislature, sure. uh, which was greeted by all of the MLAs in the chamber with a big round of applause and, and desk banging. And so, <laughs> very mature. It's a, yeah, it's a very, like, it's a very uh, as, as a group, um, almost universally extroverted, mm-hmm. um, loud, big personalities, and um, it can definitely go too far. Mm-hmm. And it's you're absolutely right in identifying that it's can be part of the fun and the 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 give and take of political theater that makes it even boring issues more interesting sure. for people. Um, and it can go too far to the point that you lose sort of what the whole point of it is. Mm-hmm. And the referee, whose job it is to maintain that balance, is the speaker. Mm-hmm. And it's a critically important role in the legislature. Uh, and it's a very difficult role for our current speaker, who I don't think it's unfair to say is reviled uh, by a significant number of the members of the opposition for uh, leaving their caucus to become the speaker and essentially significantly impacting the balance of the legislature and a minority parliament, mm-hmm. putting them in opposition for the foreseeable future. Before, you know, there was a one vote margin, but when he almost crossed the floor to take this neutral role as speaker, yeah, um, that was really big for them. And uh, and really, they many of them have not gotten over that. So it makes it more difficult than a regular speaker might have uh, faced in the same situation. There's a personality conflict that makes things a little bit more amplified now when he tries to get control of the house in different ways. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but on the whole, um, he does a good job of doing that despite that. And BC is known as a legislature that is a little bit louder than most, uh, based on the tradition of the UK parliament <laughs> where as well, they have this kind of, uh, heckling, uh, right. you can hear it even in the speaker there, uh, John Burkow is, uh, uh, quite an outspoken speaker and quite famous around the world, and which usually speakers aren't. Let me ask you as well. I mean, you, you threw a little bit of this to the opposition. When you said that, or basically alluded to Todd Stone not having the stones, basically saying he doesn't have the balls to ask you a question, do you think that was appropriate? I mean, I loved it. Just as an observer, I loved it. But do you think that was appropriate rhetoric in the chamber? Yeah. So uh, the challenge of the legislature is to respond, in my opinion, in kind. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I get asked a serious political question about an important issue, mm-hmm. I hope that you would see that um, I take it seriously, provide a serious response, uh, make sure that the op- members of the opposition get briefings, that they know what the legislation is that's going ahead. Because I've been in opposition, I remember what it's like, and I remember asking serious political questions and not getting serious answers. So I, sure. I try to do my best on that, and I, you know, give credit to members of the opposition when it's due. Linda Larson most recently on the on the end of daylight savings time. But when I get the leader of the opposition standing up and having the gall, in my opinion, to say that uh, I am wildly mismanaging ICBC and uh, running uh, inappropriate lawsuits and I should be fired from my job, it is so over the top. Sure. It is so ridiculous for, frankly, a political party that did drive ICBC into the ditch and you know had a Supreme Court of Canada hearing that lasted all of 15 minutes before the court rendered a decision from the bench mm-hmm. about the teacher strike. It's too much. And so I feel um, 
appropriately or not, and your listeners may judge uh, rightly or wrongly, uh, the need to push back in kind. And a ridiculous uh, question like that deserved a ridiculous <laughs> answer, which is uh, was a play on words uh, about a member's last name, which you're not allowed to use a member's name in the That's house. Right. You have to say the so-and-so, That's from, why it was so so-and-so clever. from here and there, you know, like he can't say their name. Uh, and, uh, and so that was uh, part of what I was doing. And it was pushing back in kind. And so when I get a totally partisan, ridiculous question, I try to push back in kind. And when I get a serious question, I try to t- treat it with the seriousness that it deserves. Sure. Fair enough. Now, you have been saddled with some big files, and we'll dig into some of them a little bit later. Money laundering, ICBC, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, the Proportional Representation Referendum. As the story is told, or at least what I've read, you were set to be the leader of the NDP, and then your wife became pregnant, so you went and you co-chaired John Horgan's campaign for leadership instead. But now you're pedal to the metal in terms of some of the province's biggest and messiest files. What is it about your family priorities in 2014 that made you step back a little bit? And since 2017, you've been taking on these messy files, some of which you yourself have characterized as a dumpster fire or a rat's nest of rot. Yeah. The the big difference between there's two things I want to say. First of all, um, you know, I was lined up to be one of the candidates for leader. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a significant and serious challenging pathway ahead for me uh, in, in a leadership race Fair at enough. that stage of my career. Um, the reason why I was able to recognize at that stage that that wasn't the job for me and even now that it's not the job for me mm-hmm is because the premier needs to be all over the province. The premier needs to be meeting and greeting people at every event. Everybody wants right. to see the premier and shake his hand and look into his eyes and, you know, do a <laughs> selfie and all these things. Sure. And, um, you know, for the minister of car insurance, it's a little bit less so. Uh, the, uh, you know, I, I'm glad you're glad I'm here. Um, but it's not the same as uh, for many people as the premier. And the premier represents the government and has all these additional roles. It is a massive time commitment. The travel mm. alone, uh, the number of people you have to meet with, even as busy as I am with all the files the premier has uh, has given me, mm-hmm. it is nothing like the personal demands on your family and you, the security demands of being the premier of the province. Mm-hmm. So it's still not for me. I have a huge capacity and interest in taking on challenging files. The premier, I think, gave me some files that we neither of us knew at the time would be as challenging as they've turned out to be. Uh, the casino file was supposed to be, you know, a no-brainer, uh, just kind of runs itself. Uh, car insurance, there were a few losses, but nothing serious. Sure. And uh, and here we are now, you know. Uh, so I have a capacity for it. I like the work, um, and uh, and I want to uh, approve a number of uh, uh, things are true, including that a public insurer is good for British Columbia, and I believe we can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel the energy to do that work. When I think about traveling the province and being away from my family to to be all over in every corner of this massive province is just... Uh, it's still uh, incompatible for me with family life. Sure. Now, whether it's your ambitious capacity to take on these big files or the enthusiasm in which the NDP came into power, the expectations are certainly high. And I want to talk about the public inquiry for money laundering. I know there's a lot that you can't say, but there were so many people clamoring for this public inquiry that I don't think a lot of people actually know what it is or what that process looks like. Are you able or can I know you're able, but can you briefly explain to me just the process of what a public inquiry is? What do the steps look like? I know there's public consultations happening right now, but just summarize it for me as a layperson. Sure. 
Um, I think just big picture, people are understandably suspicious of government given what we came through on the money laundering file. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't matter, NDP, liberal, whatever, government's probably hiding things or making things look a certain way so that they look better and the other party looks worse and whatever. Sure. So a public inquiry is meant to be this function that takes place independent of government. Mm-hmm. Uh, the word public is is serious. It's meant to be a public airing of the issues so that people can see with their own eyes in real time this whole thing come out. Yeah. Uh, and can have more confidence, ideally, that they know everything that they can know about the issue and how we move forward. So specifically for money laundering, the fact that the activity was taking place in our casinos for almost a decade, the fact that uh, it escaped a huge amount of scrutiny that should have been there, the failure of regulators at every level, the failure of policing, and the prosecution ultimately of the largest uh, money laundering operation alleged in BC history, the failure of that trial on the eve Mm -hmm. uh, of when it was to begin, uh, the Silver International case, um, the uh, remarkable work done by international experts on the BC housing market to say that there was literally billions of dollars of laundered money in our housing market, Mm -hmm. all of that needs to go through a process where people can have confidence that the government is doing everything we can to address it and that something that hasn't happened is is the naming of names and the people who knew and the people who didn't do their jobs. Yeah. And to have someone I've uh, hired and, and essentially Peter German worked independently of me as much as possible. But I mean, he was within my ministry, he was paid by my ministry and so on to People still have questions about that. So Mm -hmm. to have a judge um, uh, running this process with total autonomy and independence of what to look at, what questions to ask, independent of government, doesn't care, NDP, liberal, whatever, to get to the truth, uh, it's meant to restore that confidence. They can demand documents from anywhere. Uh, They can subpoena people to come and testify. They could subpoena someone believed to be involved in money laundering to come and testify to tell uh, British Columbians how they do it. Hmm. The risk of that is, and the downside of a public inquiry, is it's not a criminal trial. And so if you subpoena a a suspected money launderer and you get that person on the stand, you say, okay, how does it work? Walk us through. What did you do? And they walk you through all their different uh, corporate structures and the properties and the cars and all the things that they did to launder the money. Uh, You can't use that in a criminal prosecution afterwards. In the future, really? That's right. See, that's that's the thing that I want to get at because I think – People expect heads to roll on this thing, and there's this high expectation that we're going to see resignations and arrests, and people are going to be held accountable for British Columbia being this epicenter of financial crime that bled into our housing crisis and our opioids crisis. And people look at things like the Carboneau Commission, where they did see arrests, they did see resignations. The German reports, Peter German's reports, identified crimes. So just as, again, a layperson... I'm looking at it and go, okay, well, you identified crime, so shouldn't there be arrests? Yeah. So two parts to that. Charbonneau um, was very conscious of staying within the lines, and when they started headed, heading down a what appeared to be a criminal uh, set of criminal activities, they would mm-hmm. stop. They wouldn't pursue it, and they would hand it off to police that would then take it from there to do a criminal investigation okay. so that the criminal trial could go ahead. Resignations are a totally different matter. The sure. cross-examination of uh, government officials and so on can go on, and that's that's a whole other story. Your question about how it is that British Columbia 
uh, can be a province where there hasn't been an effective prosecution of this kind of activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that uh, everyone can agree from the Drug Enforcement Agency and the U.S. government to the uh, international conglomerate of anti-money laundering agencies, to the federal government itself, to the B.C. government, that we are an a center of this kind of activity, and yeah. yet the charges don't happen. The story that illustrates it really well for me is um, there was a, a series of reports about a, 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 a landscaper who uh, dr- was driving to a casino. He was uh, allegedly impaired while he was driving there. Uh, he got in an accident in the casino parking lot. Police uh, arrested him. Hmm. As part of the arrest, they allegedly found uh, a large amount of uh, unmarked bills and uh, some drugs. And uh, he was uh, the property was seized. Uh, he was arrested, um, and there was a prosecution. the The thing that was fascinating about it was, if he had managed to not crash his car in the casino parking lot and managed to make it through the front door, all the video I've seen of what happened in BC casinos is he would have been treated like a VIP. He would have dropped his unmarked bills right. on the counter, and they would have been thrilled to see him. And he would have filled out forms that explained who he was and the money and where he <laughs> lived and all these things. And all those forms would have been filled out, and and nothing would have happened. So why, like, I have the same question you have, and I hope the public inquiry can get to this. Why is it if he made it in the doors of the casino, he was a VIP, mm-hmm. and if he had a crash in the casino parking lot, he was a criminal? And because there's supposed to actually be more policing and more regulation in the casino than in the parking lot. Yeah, exactly. So these are the questions that are really uh, difficult to answer. Um, And they involve multiple agencies, federal and provincial, Mm -hmm. as well as uh, various government decisions over the years. And, uh, And that's, I hope we get there. And there's a wide recognition for some reason that we're incredibly poor at prosecuting organized crime uh, in our province. The German reports have also identified negligence as well, and they've they've shown that maybe information was suppressed or ignored. I guess my question is, is negligence of crimes happening if, if an elected official or a government official was told that, hey, this is happening right now, and they either ignored it or they suppressed the information or they silenced a whistleblower or something of that nature, is that a crime? Um, so it... I don't want to go down the road of of giving legal advice. No, I understand. But, yeah, but so just, <laughs> but there will be a lot of British Columbians from the hypotheticals. Mm-hmm. There is a there are obligations on people who are in positions of trust that a breach of that duty uh, can rise to a criminal offense, mm-hmm. uh, and it could also. Um, rise to any number of uh, regulatory offenses, both federally and provincially. Um, so it's uh, not out of the question that that could happen in terms of any official duty that you're supposed to have that you then breach. Um, and so there, there is a, a standard of conduct that is expected of public officials that it is possible to breach to a level that it becomes criminal. Okay. How is it looking like from the federal angle? I know you've been very vocal about obtaining federal support. You feel like promises were made, but resources were not delivered. Obviously, we just came out of an election you would think even more promises were made, perhaps. What's the situation like right now? Yeah, this is the hardest one um, because essentially it is a failure um, to, to some degree that I need to own personally in that um, I have failed to convince the federal government to prioritize putting money into additional money into law enforcement in British Columbia. And 
Um, chalk it up to a number of factors. One is a willingness to meet and have conversations with these senior ministers and and to say, listen, you know, we need your help on this and to hear them say, yeah, we get it. We're going to help. We're going to bring money. We're going to bring these resources to British Columbia. And then just nothing happening till the next meeting and saying, listen, guys, like this is really <laughs> serious this time. Like, yeah. we, you know, we've discovered that there's no police uh, at the RCMP that are dedicated anti-money laundering police officers. Like mm-hmm. the, all the desks are empty. You need to deal with this. This is serious. Oh, yeah. You know, we're definitely, you know, we're, we're we've dedicated 20 million dollars or whatever the number was. Um before the election that that's going to come to increased policing. Well, how much of that is coming to British Columbia? Well, you know, we're going to figure all that out and <laughs> like we still haven't seen it. And yeah. and the I mean, really uh we do need to know if we're in it on our own, um which is a difficult uh, thing to know, but is at least um, better than the situation that we're in, which is uh, the Fed saying that they're going to take this on, that they're interested in it, that they care about it. And then uh, us believing that and trying to work with them and that delaying pieces of work that need to happen. And most importantly, on the policing side. Can we do it alone? Yes. Um, there are significant pieces that we can do on our own. And we've... Uh, uh, got a joint integrated, uh, it's a gaming enforcement team, but they're working closely with um, uh, police outside of gaming and sharing information around money laundering. And we have uh, work with BC Lottery Corporation and others around that. And we've been working with uh, police around designing a, a team that would uh, work across boundaries to be able to do anti-money laundering policing. Mm-hmm. It is something we can do on our own. It's harder. Um, the feds have jurisdiction over FinTrack, which is the anti-money laundering agency. Mm-hmm. They have jurisdiction over international matters. But there's some uh, pieces that could be done relatively quickly around unregistered, unregistered money service businesses. And it gets it sounds a little bit technical, but these sort of exchange places, money exchange places that are all over the place, many of them mm-hmm. don't have the registration that's required by federal law. Um, just... And the, one of the things that people don't understand is I don't direct the police. Like I can't, <laughs> people are like, just, well, why don't you just tell the police to go and, and shut all these things down? And it's like, I can't actually do that. There's a very clear division of powers that, because that's a different kind of governance model sure, where, the, yeah. where, you know, the government directs the police and yeah. it's not a good one. Yeah. Um, and uh, so it's about police resourcing and time and what their priorities are and so on. And so it, it is a bit of a... So the hope is when you fund a policing team to work on it, that they work on these things and prioritize them. How likely is it that we do have to go it alone? And I'm only saying this because we came out of a federal election where the incumbent government usually likes to make big promises or, you know, show their commitments to certain things. They had an issue with an MP in Richmond, which didn't look good. British Columbia was very important where they wanted to hold on to a lot of seats. It almost feels to me, just as a observer, and I could be dead wrong on this, that that opportunity might have passed, and now there's not a lot of incentive for them to take interest in our concerns here if they didn't during that election where they're trying to get and mobilize support. Yeah. So um, I think to to a certain extent, um, you're right in that I was disappointed too in the federal election where you have an issue that has salience with like, I saw the poll, it was like 90% of British Columbia, yeah. something ridiculous. Just across the political spectrum. Yeah, everybody is yeah. like, this is crazy. You know, this is a federal election issue and just how little uh, that penetrated uh, in terms of the issues that mm-hmm. the parties were talking about and notionally in a province that mattered a great deal mm-hmm. to all three 
all four um, political parties, mm-hmm. uh, major national political parties. Um, and I don't want to leave your listeners with the impression that we're not um, working on our own. We have uh, a world-leading uh, registry for properties that's going to be coming online in the spring where you have to declare who the actual owner is of residential property uh, in our province. Uh, currently, you can own it through an offshore trust or a numbered company with a lawyer as the sole director. Uh, you can have someone with no apparent source of income buying it, a student or a housewife or the notorious uh, examples. Sure. And, uh, and so... Uh, you have to actually declare where the money came from uh, in this registry that it will be public, open for journalists uh, from around the world, uh, for police departments, hmm. for tax authorities, and so on, to find money that's hidden in our real estate market, hmm. which we know is an issue. The uh, same thing for companies, that you can no longer own a company and hide the ownership of the company. You have to actually have who is a majority shareholder for a British Columbia company, okay. and that will be available to police and tax authorities. It, it won't be a public registry at first. Hmm. And so there are big things that we're doing to assist existing police investigations and police investigations and tax investigations around the world. Um, And at the same time, it's possible to say, man, I really wish the feds treated this like (laughs) it was uh, an issue that was causing harm to Canada's international reputation, which it is. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go back to the public inquiry and go back to the Cullen Commission. A good friend of mine, the mayor of Port Coquitlam, Brad West, recently tweeted that the stage is set for the Cullen Commission not to meet public expectations around accountability after Fred Pinnock was not granted formal standing as a witness. And this is important because Mr. Pinnock was an RCMP illegal gambling unit leader, and he was the one that has sort of claimed that the previous provincial government had turned a blind eye to money laundering. Mayor West's fear is that whistleblowers will not be given the same opportunity to make legal submissions, whether that's documents or testimony, to the inquiry. What is your response to Mayor West's concerns? Um, I don't know uh, all the reasons why the commission granted standing to certain people and didn't to others. Sure. Um, and uh, But what I can say is that being granted standing means that you have the ability it, it can mean any number of procedural rights, but usually it means you have the ability to call your own witnesses. Hmm. Um, you have the ability to, um, uh, as you say, make legal arguments. Um, it doesn't mean necessarily that the commission wants to see you as a witness. Um, it doesn't mean necessarily that the commission um, uh, thinks that your arguments are going to be particularly helpful in one direction or another. Um, but they do recognize generally that you're going to be facing potentially some kind of consequence out of negative consequence generally out of the inquiry. Now, that may or may not be reasons why they granted standing to any particular group or individual. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that generally speaking, if there was a theme in commissions of inquiry granting standing, it's because there's some kind of uh, personal consequence for you that arises out of the commission of inquiry. Sure. And so for Mr. Pinnock, um, it, I, I don't know whether the commission, because it's totally independent of government, I don't know whether the commission plans on calling him as a witness. I would be really surprised um, if they didn't. Yeah. Um, and that he was somehow denied an opportunity to tell his story about his experience. Um, but uh, it is clear that that decision at this stage, and they can always revisit it later, means that he will not be able to stand up and make legal arguments that likely would be made in the commission's opinion, by some other party, either by commission counsel uh, themselves, the lawyer for the commission, or some other party that already has standing that could better represent the interest uh, that's at play. 
So that's that's generally the the math that they do. Sure. Someone going to make that argument because they do have a lot of people that are witnesses mm-hmm. uh, to areas of concern. And if everybody gets standing and everybody's making legal arguments and everybody's trying to call sure. witnesses, then suddenly you end up with a, an enterprise that is quite massive and hard to control and and uh, you can get into trouble in a hurry. Sure. And stepping away from his specific case, if someone does have evidence, if they are a witness to something, there there can still be a part of this inquiry without having formal standing. Is that correct? That is, but they have right. to be called by someone else effectively. Yeah, so the, the commission will call their own witnesses. Okay. Um, and it could be Mr. Pinnock. It could be uh, anybody uh, that was in the gaming policy enforcement branch, or it could be a politician, uh, or it could be uh, me, or it could be, uh, you know, some expert on a particular issue. Mm-hmm. And uh, they will, in my limited experience in public inquiries, uh, uh, being involved in a couple of them, they do try to control the witness list um and, and avoid a situation where there's a whole bunch of people trying to call different witnesses okay. just to keep control of the proceeding and make sure that it moves forward. Yeah. Um, witnesses, when they show up, you know, to testify, and they often show up with a lawyer uh, supporting them, um, they uh, bring information with them, they bring documents with them, they tell the commission about documents the commission should be getting, uh, and then the commission can go out and subpoena those documents. Okay. Interesting. On the topic of documents... You've asked Andrew Wilkinson to waive cabinet privilege on documents about money laundering. I asked Andrew Wilkinson on this very program about that. And he said, and this is his quote, quote, we have written to the ministry of the attorney general and said, can you provide us with the documents for review? And we've seen nothing. We're trying to get this done in an orderly fashion. The NDP are trying to make propaganda out of it. End quote. What is happening here? Can you explain the situation? Because he's saying that he's he's basically asked or his party has asked for what documents do you need? And he has not heard from your office. Is that accurate? So we'll take a step back. Mm -hmm. Uh, So one thing that people may not understand and one thing that I didn't understand on being sworn in, mm-hmm. I sort of had the impression that there would be a filing cabinet behind my desk full of all the key documents that <laughs> finally, outside of a freedom of information process, I could go through and see all the decisions that were made, why they were made. You would think so, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> there is a, a constitutional convention around uh, essentially a, a bright line between cabinet deliberations that happened under the previous government and the new government. Mm-hmm. And those cabinet deliberations are sealed off from me. Now, okay. theoretically, I could breach the convention and order the public service to disclose the documents. It would be a very interesting court case, I'm sure. <laughs> um, and uh, and and legal, legal scholars would be talking about it for a long time. It would be very unusual. And it um, sounds like it would be time-consuming as well. Yeah, and and also... You know, it's it's there for a reason. You want cabinets to be able to have these full discussions about different issues and not worry about, you know, what's this going to look like when, you know, people go through, the next government goes through, and sure. then they're not able to have the full debates that they need to have. And the, the documents are ultimately um, uh, released. It's just, you know, years and years down the road. Mm-hmm. And so for this piece, it's like... Okay, I listened to Rich Coleman and he was doing media and he was saying, we did so much on money laundering. We were like, we were amazing on money laundering. It was huge. It was fantastic. We were so great. And then it's like, well, okay, um, if that's the case, surely 
you're proud of the record that you've created, why don't you agree to release the cabinet record of all the work that you did on money laundering? Because frankly, I don't think there's anything. Right. Uh, I don't know because I, I can't get at it mm-hmm. uh, without uh, breaching this very significant convention. And so the answer that came back was, you know, no. And then I was like, well, you know, let's see what they are and then we'll pick and choose. I assume that's why they want to see the documents. They want to pick and choose uh, what uh, goes public. And the I, I've instructed the public service to work with the liberals. I don't actually know where they're at in the process. Mm-hmm. I had uh, I was under the impression that they had received um, a document list or documents themselves. And Mike DeYoung is their lead contact. So when Mr. Wilkinson is very... Uh, careful with his language. And so when he says that, um, you know, I haven't seen the documents, he's probably telling you the truth, but Mike DeYoung is the contact. Sure. Okay. okay. So, um, but I don't know uh, whether he uh, has received those documents from the public service. Off- I just know that this process has been going on now with letters back and forth <laughs> for like two years since we asked them for it. So, so your office did communicate back to him once once they send that we've request because he been, said we've seen nothing. Yes, that's right. Okay. So we've been back and forth with them about this issue. And, um, you know, I, I, the problem is I don't get to see the correspondence, I don't get to see the documents, and so I don't get to monitor it in that, at that level like I would with ordinary files mm-hmm. because of the convention. So, um, but it's interesting, you know, if uh, you've given me something to follow up on. <laughs> um, I just, I just think for a lot of people, including myself, we don't understand how this works. And like you said, that assumption that oh, you just inherit the yeah, filing go to the cabinet, 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 yeah, you know, and pull out the files, exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. and. I, I assume that there's a process which Mr. Wilkinson made it sound like it's very it's a very straightforward, orderly process, but you're making it sound like it actually is a lot more complicated to obtain these documents. Well, it doesn't it doesn't typically happen. Like it doesn't. I mean, it's unless there's some sort of a, of illegality or corruption or some other major issue, uh, you wouldn't typically get access to cabinet documents generally, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and so. Are you these know, digital kind of or it's paper exceptional. or both? I don't know. They might okay. be like they might be PowerPoint presentations. So gotcha. in cabinet, you know, you'll see things like PowerPoint presentations and uh, briefing notes and yeah. uh, these kinds of things that are prepared for cabinet. And then there's a formal record kept of decisions that are made by cabinet and some uh, records that are kept of the debates of cabinet um, by a secretary of the cabinet. Um, okay. So those are all records that would be typical to expect, especially if you'd done a huge amount of work on something. There'd be all kinds of briefing notes and decision notes and PowerPoint presentations, that kind of stuff. Okay. And there is a legal op- obligation to keep these records, to store these records, even if they are sealed? That's right. So the we uh, actually passed a law around um, uh, requiring uh, that a record of decision be kept, the, the information that was used to make the decision and the, hmm. the decision itself. Um, and that was something that... Um, certainly was present in, an, in, in a less formal way, but it should have been present in the previous government as well. Do you think you'll ever see these documents that you want to see? Definitely not. You know, <laughs> I mean, assuming they exist, right? Like it's, you know, we'll, we'll go right back and then there'll be a letter in two months and whatever. The, the people who are going to see these documents, if anyone, will be the uh, will be the Cullen Commission. It, sure. won't be, it won't be me. It won't be the public necessarily unless the commission actually decides to 
to table them, but it would be a big deal for them to ask for cabinet documents. So they would mm-hmm. presumably uh, need some kind of reason to go there. Somebody saying, yeah, this was talked about in cabinet and that there was a specific decision made not to pursue this issue. Uh, and then they would, you know, because it would be a big deal to ask for cabinet documents is a very carefully protected privilege. Sure. How do you respond to Mr. Wilkinson saying that you David Eby have turned this into a giant political campaign. I know that there was a there was a website that, that was talking about this and it was used in some NDP political messaging. How do you respond to him saying that you're just using this for politics? There's nothing here. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think for it's hard for me to respond to Mr. Wilkinson's argument sometimes because they they defy my experience of the world. So when you have an issue, like where you have an issue with 90% of British Columbians saying, this is really bad. Uh, this, we're really concerned about this. Uh, I can tell you that outside of daylight savings time, it is the number one uh, issue that people write to me about is money laundering and the call for a public inquiry. And, um, and so, you know, people were demanding it, uh, it was not a priority of government coming out of the gate uh, that we were going to do a big public inquiry mm-hmm. on this. And in fact, I said many, many times that we weren't going to do a public inquiry. And it was only when uh, we uncovered the luxury car piece and the, mm-hmm. the additional real estate information that it was just finally so uh, uh, pressing for people that it was like, well, you know, this is a necessary thing to do. I don't take it lightly. Yeah. I'll give you a good marks for that jab you took. That was pretty good. Lacked a double entendre, but, you know, (laughs) I put you on the spot. Let's talk about some of the speculation and tax evasion in real estate. Your government has taken great steps to crack down on a lot of this. But there are a lot of people, including the BC Green Party leader, Andrew Weaver, who say that the big problem is something called a bear trust loophole. And I think you've already alluded to this, but... The bear trust loophole allows purchasers of real estate to avoid paying the BC property transfer tax, the foreign buyers tax, and other federal income taxes. Why is it taking so long to close this loophole? Because it's being presented in the media as a super simple fix to fixing a lot of speculative and tax evading activity. Yeah. The... um the bear trust piece is generally used in commercial real estate um, where you put the property into a trust mm-hmm. and then you don't sell the property itself. What you sell is the the trust interest to somebody else. But you could do this with residential real estate You could estate totally well, do it with right? any kind of property, including yeah. residential property. And uh, it's generally understood um, mm-hmm. that that uh, exempts you from paying the property transfer tax. It doesn't necessarily uh, exempt you from the... Um, speculator tax. Okay. Um, but it may uh, be an effective way, I don't know, uh, around the foreign buyer tax. I haven't heard that issue before. Mm-hmm. I haven't looked at it. Um, the uh, It's one of my uh, pet issues for sure. Um, <laughs> I uh, have talked about it a lot. I know uh, Mr. Weaver has talked about it a lot. Um, and one of the um, challenges with Uh, new tax legislation is you want it to be very thorough and careful because almost Mm -hmm. certainly it's going to end up in court. The foreign (laughs) buyer tax is in court. Uh, The the tax uh, that we've placed uh, on speculators to uh, and people who don't pay taxes in uh, British Columbia who buy residential real estate here Mm -hmm. um, is uh, is in court. Um, All these things are in court and they're challenged. So you want to be really thorough and careful. Ontario has passed laws to close this. Mm -hmm. And I know that um, 
because I've talked to the finance minister and I've said this is really important for us to do. Um, I know that uh, the finance minister is aware of that, and uh, I am hopeful uh, that uh, it is all part of uh, the work that is happening in that ministry. And as far as new taxes and and that kind of thing, there is some level of secrecy around it. Uh, sure. And uh, in terms of the work done in the finance ministry to avoid the possibility of somebody trying to game the system and avoid paying taxes or inadvertently disclosing things. So I'm not aware of whether or not that is something that finance is about to bring in. Did Ontario's finance ministry or the Ontario government go to court over the closing their loophole? I don't know that history, but I do know that uh, that my understanding is that that they were effective in closing the loophole. Okay, interesting. And, and the the part that drives me crazy about it is, um, you know, when you talk about the Bentall buildings downtown mm-hmm. or these massive mega deals that international uh, conglomerates are trading downtown Vancouver properties, uh, the why uh, we would have uh, had a situation where for so many years those companies wouldn't be paying property transfer yeah. tax yet, you know, Joe Six Pack, you know, is just selling his family's townhome, has to pay it. Um, so that that fundamental unfairness, I think, is something that really registers across our party and the Green mm-hmm. Party as why it's one of the issues that we're concerned about and, and interested in addressing. Sure. On CKNW, you said that you were pissed off about media like Business in Vancouver and think tanks like the Fraser Institute basically telling people how cracking down on money laundering would affect certain sectors of the economy. Kirk Lapointe, editor-in-chief at Business in Vancouver, responded by saying that you're suggesting, and this is his quote now, the only victims of a money laundering crackdown are going to be the gang members for the show trials, end quote. And he also said that he's pissed off with you for using your position to score political points and ridicule journalism. Putting that as our context, has there been or is there going to be collateral damage in the BCNDP's crackdown on money laundering to the economy or to certain sectors of the legitimate economy. Yeah, I guess um, the 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 concern that I had with that particular piece was more the, t- the tone of the piece, which I <laughs> realize sounds a bit like, well, oh, so, sorry, EB, you didn't like the tone. Uh, but, like, <laughs> but I really, um, it was kind of like, oh, this is terrible. Like all of these luxury goods retailers are going to be affected by the fact that people can't bring in a bag full of $20 bills and pay for this, you know, uh, $20,000 watch. Mm-hmm. Like how outrageous is this? And, um, and that tone is really what I took exception to. Not that, I mean, my hope is that there's a reckoning of, uh, you know, when it comes to what's been happening in our real estate market and the, the luxury goods, the luxury cars, all this crazy stuff that's been happening that's totally disconnected from the economic fundamentals of, mm-hmm. of um, British Columbians. And because um, I don't think it's a net benefit to our economy to turn into this um, sort of resort community for the ultra rich uh, and you know, international kleptocrats, um, and and then we can all get jobs, uh, you know, selling them luxury goods. Um, it just sounds like such an empty, garbage vision of what our province could actually be, and what it can be, and what it is. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I don't. I guess the the exception I took to it was really that I don't feel particularly badly about it. I'm surprised when people are feeling badly about that. Um, and 
the, there are consequences, uh, and as an immediate consequence, is the $30 million hole in BC Lottery Corporation's revenue passed over to government because the high stakes table games uh, essentially have collapsed. Uh, sure. They were built on um, these uh, whale gamblers buying um, dirty cash and bringing it into the casino, which we don't accept anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there is a consequence of a higher risk of people engaging in those kinds of activities outside of. Um, the casino uh, in terms of like private gaming, illegal gaming houses and that kind of stuff. So we need mm-hmm. to be on top of that. So it calls for more regulation and enforcement on our end. And um, the interesting thing is when we did the luxury cars piece, I had a phone call from a BMW dealer and I was like, oh, now I'm really going <laughs> to, now I'm really going to get it. And this guy was like, yeah, thank you so much for exposing these straw buyers of our cars and like oh, wow. if there's anything we can do to help you because we uh, try to t- detect them and stop them from buying the cars because we get punished by B- BMW International mm-hmm. uh, for doing it. And uh, and it was just really appreciative. I think it was BMW. I don't want to. <laughs> I think it was BMW. A luxury car dealer. Sure. And. And it was it was so startling to me that, that this guy who sells luxury cars was like, thanks for cracking down on a stream of customers for us. Yeah. I was like, wow. And and when that work was done and there were luxury car dealers who were saying, you know, I feel like I'm in the middle of money laundering and I don't feel comfortable about what's happening, but please don't make me confront some gangster with a bag full of cash. Like, yeah. I don't feel like that's my job. Someone yeah. else should be doing that. Um, it, it does, people make assumptions about um, who's on what side in this discussion and, mm-hmm. and where we're going. And um, and I make those assumptions and, and I'm always pleasantly surprised when they're wrong. And I'm totally unpleasantly surprised when an article shows up that's like disappointing to me in the sense that business in Vancouver to me is about business that is uh, exciting and innovative and green tech and mm-hmm. tech and uh, the future. And it's not about dirty money and luxury goods. Yeah, fair enough. And that's a that's a great story to hear because there is that stereotype that all business interests are all financial interests after years of business being gangbusters don't want to take a little haircut in order to reform certain structural issues, right? So that is nice to hear that there are business people that are on board and I think legitimate business people who've been doing their business legitimately and on the up and up, why wouldn't they be on board? Well, here's the irony is that um the the growth of the illicit economy and that the what I would call the garbage economy mm-hmm. uh, has has come at the expense of the legitimate economy and so when housing mm-hmm. prices are out of control people can't earn enough money to pay for housing here uh, you stifle research at UBC you stifle tech jobs you stifle uh, attracting people to come here to start businesses because like they look at the housing price and they're like man like I'm gonna go do this somewhere else where I can actually afford to live sure um, and because I have other opportunities. And so it's not a zero-sum game where you like grow this terrible uh, poison economy and then there's no consequence for everything else. Mm-hmm. It actually does come at a significant consequence or something Fair else. Enough. So you have to create that space for, for these things to happen. That's why I hope one of the reasons why uh, Vancouver was recently ranked one of the top places in the world for tech jobs um, and uh, why our economy is doing well despite uh, this work that we've done. Mm-hmm. Let's shift gears here and let's talk about ICBC. (laughs) Fantastic. I want to give a shout out to my friend, Kyla Lee. 
She was a previous guest on the show as well. You were on her podcast. I was. And the podcast is called Driving Law, and you extensively discussed ICBC reform. And I don't want to go too much in the weeds with this. I just have a few basic questions. But I do want to direct listeners, if they want more, to go to that podcast. First, there seems to be this concerted effort to promote the privatization of ICBC, which you called ICBC a financial dumpster fire. So obviously there's a knee-jerk reaction of let's just sell it off and you know let the market deal with it. We all know that it's been mismanaged rather obscurely for many years. As the minister in charge of ICBC, is privatization of ICBC, which the proponents would claim gives British Columbians a choice, is that on the table for you? Um, so absolutely not. And I'll tell you why. Um, the, the private insurers, the insurance bureau, uh, produced a report. They hired this third-party business firm called M&P to go do a report. What mm-hmm. would the impact be on British Columbia of privatization? And, you know, I'll, I'll give them credit. The report was honest. Mm-hmm. Um, one can assume it was their best face forward about what would happen under privatization in B.C., And hidden away on page 35 was this chart that showed that there would be no benefit for anybody under the age of 45. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, there would be an increase of 17% on basic insurance for people under the age of 35. And for people under the age of 25, uh, there'd be a 30% uh, increase. If everything was privatized. Under basic insurance, under privatization. Wow. The benefit would be experienced people ages 45 and older. Hmm. And... I just think we can do better than that. When I look across the country and I see the private insurance jurisdictions, Alberta just got rid of their cap on rate increases because their insurance system was in crisis. Ontario, their insurance system's in crisis uh, where um, the government has commissioned multiple reports. They don't know what to do mm-hmm. about how to fix it. Um, and uh, uh, New Brunswick even, uh, 50% increase, uh, one of the insurers filed for there. Wow. When we... When I look at them, they're all really unstable and crazy. And mm-hmm. when I look at the public insurers, Saskatchewan and Manitoba, um, Manitoba uh, had a 1% rate increase. And I think Saskatchewan had a, a decrease in their rates. Hmm. Um, and so the public insurers are doing well. The private insurers are really struggling. The thing that drives me crazy is that the private insurers, you know, they're in Alberta. They're saying the system's unsustainable. They're in Ontario saying, why is the cost of insurance so high? Here's how we can help. And and here they are in BC trying to tell us how to fix uh, things by having them come here. Yeah. Um, and And I've said to them, and I'll say to them on this show, you're allowed to compete in the, it's called the optional market collision, third-party liability, everything beyond basic insurance. Mm -hmm. If you can provide more affordable insurance to British Columbians of any age, please do it. Like, come and do it. If you can prove that you can do this for anybody except the most exceptionally safe drivers, Mm -hmm. um, please do it. Um, Because I don't... You know, I don't lie awake at night going, oh, no, you know, like somebody bought private insurance from uh, somebody on the optional market. If they can get a better price, I think that's fantastic. But the reality is they can't do it. So some of them have requirements. You have to have four years accident free before they'll even write a quote for you. Um, uh, before uh, I was minister responsible, I called a private insurer to ask if they would uh, insure me to get a quote for myself. Mm-hmm. And they refused to write for me because my car was a rebuild. <laughs> really? And uh, oh, they wow. said, no, we don't write for rebuilds. Huh. Uh, and they won't write for uh, inexperienced drivers. And yeah. it's just like, you know what? 
I don't mind you coming here and saying we have something to offer, but I do mind you coming here and saying we're the answer when you refuse to write for British Columbians under the existing system. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the part that anyway, I, I agree with you. Like, let's not get into the weeds. I think that um, ICBC has broken even and made money for British Columbians in the past. Mm-hmm. I think it can do it again. It's just the system got totally crazy, and we're put we're bringing reforms in to get it back under control. And and I agree with you. And I'm relieved to say that that option is not on the table for you. But then my question is, why are you you losing the PR battle with these private insurers? Because a lot of people in this province are really upset. They're seeing some of their insurance rates go up. They're seeing their kids getting a first car and, and their insurance being ridiculous. And there just seems to be this public push for privatization. But I think your argument is very strong. I just don't know why it's not resonating yeah. with the public. It's a lot more complicated, the argument that I just laid out for you, than... Um you made argument. it very digestible for me. Yeah, Thank well, that, you. I mean, like, the, the, like, you know what? It's a mess. Just sell it. Let the private sector fix it. It's like, you know, I'm like, I'm nodding along because I, you know what? I would love to just say, oh, fantastic. What a wonderful solution. Um, this is great. And my work here is done. Yeah. Um, but I know I would be absolutely pilloried for the results. And the results would be uh, catastrophic for a huge mm-hmm. number of British Columbians across the province. And, um, and so... That that is the challenge in politics is sometimes the right policy approach is not uh, the one that's the most easily communicated. Yeah. And I feel like if we could take British Columbians and sit them down in a room and go through and they could see other provinces and they could talk to people in other provinces about their experience. And people move to BC from other provinces and they remember what it was like a decade ago when they mm. left Ontario or when they left Alberta and they don't know uh, what the reality is like in those provinces right now, uh, which is pretty terrible. And uh, and there there's pressure on insurance across North America right now. So it, that makes it hard too because people remember fondly um, their time in other places, and then they think, you know, each year that insurance goes up here, that it's just here that it's happening. Mm-hmm. But there's uh, the only answer for British Columbians, and the only one uh, that I can, in good faith, um, uh, know will make a difference is if we can provide affordable rates and, and good mm-hmm. coverage for people, and that will be a full answer um, and uh, will address the issue. And we're not there yet. ICBC's finances are way more stable. There's a billion dollars less in losses currently, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet rates are still high, so we have more work to do. On the communication end, are you able to say to the BC Liberals when they push for privatization or they say that, you know, just sell it off? Aren't you just able to say, well, you had that M&P report. Why didn't you privatize it when you were in power? Yeah. It seems like a pretty obvious question for anyone who's pushing for privatization was that we knew of this many years in advance. Why can't you say that? Um, it's it's a good message for the liberals. <laughs> it is a <laughs> terrible message for drivers because they're like, please, God, don't tell me about the liberals. I don't care about the liberals. Right. I don't care about the NDP. All I care about is that I got this crazy insurance bill. And like, why won't you let me choose some private provider who's who's promised me that they're going to provide that's fair, lower yeah. rates? And, and that's where it kind of breaks down a little bit, the mm-hmm. difference between political debates and the reality of a driver getting an invoice for insurance in their car. And that's why I think that ultimately the only argument that will be successful is if we can get those rates down for people. And we'll get into some of the political communication a little bit later. But one last question on ICBC. Mm -hmm. Mike Smith at The Province had an article recently, and he asked a very simple question again, which I couldn't figure out for myself either. Why can't we renew auto insurance online? Because the brokers take an 8% cut. You have to go there in person, or sometimes they come and visit you. 
it seems like an 8% savings right away if we built up that online infrastructure. Yeah. So, um, and it's, it's more than that and it's less than that, more than that. So it's less on basic and it's more on the optional insurance that the brokers get, okay. um, just so you know. And, um, the, the challenge with it is it's not zero sum. So first of all, we're doing it where mm-hmm. we will be introducing online renewals. The reason why you're not doing it this year is because it's a very significant IT project for ICBC to do, to take over the role of the brokers that involves hiring a sales team. Uh, the tech team uh, to maintain things and redoing their computer system to enable the online renewals. Sure. When you add in the cost of uh, time, uh, money, and staff to do that, it comes at the expense of other reforms. And there are a fixed number of people at ICBC. I know that this is almost certainly of very limited interest to people who just want to renew online. Right? <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. But as minister responsible, you have to recognize certain capacity issues. And mm-hmm. one of which is this is a crown corporation that hasn't made any significant changes in probably about a decade and a half. And to say to them, okay, we want you to, to um, do all of this uh, uh, work around the civil resolution, uh, civil resolution tribunal and a cap on personal or on uh, pain and suffering awards. And we want you to do these legal reforms. We want you to do this reform around auto body work. We want you to do a uh, driver training review. We want you to do online. Like it just um, has a very significant risk of failing and mm-hmm. uh, being significantly over budget. So it's in the queue. It's something that we're doing. And when, um, when and, is that going to get started? Uh, well, the, the policy work is happening now with okay. ICBC and, um, and, the uh, when you'll be able to actually roll out, there are a couple of different models, and one is um, the model used in Manitoba, where the brokers uh, provide all of the back end. Essentially, if you have any issue renewing through their website or whatever, you call them up, and they deal with all of your issues and provide advice to you and whatever, mm-hmm. and they get a small commission for that. Um, or uh, where ICBC runs it themselves, and so th- this is one that I'm a little bit more nervous about, um, and uh, <laughs> and so there's still a lot more work to do on that. Would we see online renewals before the next election, or is that too ambitious? In a minority parliament, uh, I'm always reluctant to promise certain things before elections <laughs> because you never know when the election is going to be. But but 2021, I think that's totally a reasonable goal for us in terms of uh, in terms of online renewals. We've got a lot of reform work that we're doing. Yeah, um, and it's a it is an important piece and. Also, um, you know, when you go to your broker now, uh, there's a number of additional pieces that you have to do that you didn't have to do before. And we do need brokers to walk people through that kind of stuff. Sure. And I'm not going to be uh, asking ICBC to hire up a huge team to do that work that someone else is already doing. They have the infrastructure. People trust them. They know where to go. Yeah. All that kind of stuff is really important. Yeah, fair enough. I want to get back to that political communication bit because I find this very fascinating. Sure. I'm a guy that on occasion on Twitter or in person has told a BC liberal, hey, you had 16 years, whether that's on housing or ICBC or rideshare. If we are to take that narrative that for 16 years there was inaction or there was negligence or mismanagement, there were poor policy choices, if we are to believe that narrative, at what point does the accountability shift from the previous BC liberal government towards your government? In other words, politically, what's the expiration date on the retort to your opposition by saying you had 16 years? Okay. Because that still is used yeah, yeah. in QP. It's used in in the media. Yeah. It's it's both uh, 
immediate on taking over government and it's never. So, <laughs> so like I was sitting in opposition, uh, listening to Christy Clark, uh, lecture me about what had happened in the 1990s sure. and Mike DeYoung talk about, uh, political scandals that had happened in 1994. And it's just like, um, evergreen. Uh, these kinds of uh, conversations like, wow, do you remember how terrible things were under party X? Mm-hmm. And frankly, I remember how terrible things were under the PC liberals. Uh, and I feel that in my heart. And that is something that I know to be true. Uh, so I don't mind talking about it. And at the same time, uh, people will have a certain amount of tolerance for that. And they'll be like, yeah, you know what? Those guys screwed up a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um and we really want to know what you want to do about it. And that's the biggest shift, I think, between opposition and government is uh, is in opposition. You have a lot of freedom to say, you know, they did a crap job on this. They did a crap job on that. This sucks. That's terrible. Why are they so bad? Yeah. Uh, and then you're not pressed as often about well, what are you like? What are you going to do about it sure. when you're in the driver's seat uh, and you have the ability to make policy decisions and to allocate resources and to and to prioritize things like, OK, are we going to address the brokers piece? Or are we going to uh, in terms of online renewals? Or are we going to uh, uh, address legal costs or what are or road safety or what, where are we going to put all our energy here? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you need to be able to artic- articulate why you're doing it and, and what your government is doing about it. So that accountability starts right away. And uh, people uh, definitely lose enthusiasm for long speeches about uh, how the previous government ran things. Um, yeah, and I'll be honest. I mean, and I've said on this program, I told Andrew Wilkinson, I used to be a card-carrying member of the BC Liberals. And one of the communication pieces that I really did not like, even when I was fully on that team, was this 1990s thing. Because when the 90s ended, I was 14. I have no idea what was happening there. And people can tell me, but I don't have that experience to connect with it. So it it didn't make much sense to me. And I'm starting to feel like, as fun as it may be for NDP supporters to say, you had 16 years, now that you've been in power for more than two years, maybe that is starting to expire. Yeah, I think, it, well, I mean, I think it's important when you have people sitting across from you that are, we're literally the architects of the housing crisis, of uh, the uh, the money laundering crisis, of the ICBC crisis, and then they stand up and ask you questions about these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's okay to say, you know, that's really funny because you know, you commissioned a report and then you ripped the pages out of it uh, and pretended you never got it. Sure. Uh, and uh, and it's hard to take that question from you seriously. Yeah. Um, so I, th- I feel okay about that. Where I don't feel okay about it is, um, as I was kind of expressing, in answering British Columbians about what we're going to do about the problems and the challenges that people face in the province mm-hmm. uh, and the opportunities that are out there for us. Um, because there is less patience um, for that. Yeah. I have two questions left. Mm-hmm. We're going to get a little a little personal. Premier Horgan seemed to give pause when asked about his political future in the wake of Andrew Weaver's resignation as the BC Green Party leader, which I think is more like inside baseball stuff for people who follow BC politics. I'm curious about you. Premier Horgan has 20 years on you. What is your professional aspiration? Um, that's a great question. <laughs> so I never expected to be the attorney general. I didn't, uh, this is not something that like, 
I aspired to when I became a lawyer. I was like, oh, God, I hope that someday uh, I become the attorney general. Uh, As a side note, the attorney general has to be a lawyer, right? Or it no, just makes... Oh, do, they don't. No, no. Oh, uh, interesting. Shirley Bond was the attorney general okay. briefly in British Columbia. Um, it's definitely helpful to okay. have an attorney general as a lawyer. Sure. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt way. you, but I've always yeah, no, not at all. been curious about that. Uh, um, and so I'm incredibly honored to have the job. Uh, it's fascinating. It's challenging. It's great. Um, and I know that it is time limited. Mm-hmm. And I also know that, you know, I got other options to afterwards, I hope still. Um, I think, and, you, I think you'll have some options. Yeah, I think you'll and, be fine. And so the nice part about that is it's kind of freeing in a sense. Like there, I do get a sense sometimes in politics that there are people who don't have another, um, professional option. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can make you quite desperate to hold on to power. Um, and it's not a good thing because mm-hmm. I think you need to make the decision that's right, even if it's not going to necessarily assist your electoral results. And you need to to do that. Um, and um, maybe ICBC is that vile for me. We'll find out. Um, <laughs> and, and so... Like I, but I feel totally content about that. And and if people say at the end of my time here, you know what, uh, you did your best, but we'd like to give someone else a shot. I feel good about that. Mm-hmm. And I have other options too. So um, that's that's how I feel about it. Um, and I I don't look at the premier's job and think, man, I wish I had that. <laughs> I really don't. I look at the things the premier does. He works so hard. He sees so many people. Um, and I just think, thank God, uh, Horgan is keen to do that um, because personally, just at the stage of life that I'm in, it's it's not for me. Yeah, that's fair. On a more general level, and I'm not talking about you specifically, but do you feel like our political culture in Canada, in BC, in Vancouver, we almost shun ambition like if someone who is in government whether they're in the governing party or opposition they say you know i want to be premier of this province one day i almost feel like people look at them and go whoa whoa you can't say that out loud <laughs> why is that i don't like i don't necessarily see that as a bad thing i think in the private sector if someone says you know i want to be an executive of this company one day no one looks at them and and shuns them for that. You know what I mean? I don't know. I mean, like my suspicion would be that people look at the job of premier and they go, who would want to do that? (laughs) You know, who who would sign up for that? I don't understand what person that shares my values would want to do that. So then it becomes suspicious. Like, well, what? I don't understand why you would want to. What do you want out of this that I don't understand? Yeah. Um, That would be my guess because I look at that job and I, and especially seeing it up close and I think, man, and, uh, and there's a long tradition of people being more excited about about outsiders who get dragged in against their will into these <laughs> leadership roles, right? That's kind of a, a time-tested archetype. Is that more the case than not that someone is dragged into this position? Uh, well, the speaker, like, literally is dragged into the speaker seat in the, sure. in the, in the parliamentary tradition. But, I mean... I think John's a really good example. I mean, he legit did not want to run. He did not want to be the leader of the party. He wanted out. He was finished. Uh, he, uh, you know, and and so, yeah, he did get dragged into it. He's having a great time now, and he's really grown into the role in amazing ways, mm-hmm. and, uh, and which is really exciting for all of us and, and great news for our government, too, because people seem to like him, which is good. Sure. I want to end on this note. You took Christy Clark's seat in Point Grey when she was premier. We've seen protests outside your constituency office over the additional school tax on homes worth more than $3 million. I'm sure the BC Liberals are very supportive of these protests. 
Speaking directly to constituents that have protested your office, that may protest your office in the future over the school tax or some of the reforms that are affecting either their their home equity or whatever else, or taxes that they have to pay on based on real estate, what do you say to your constituents? Well, you know, I uh, say what I said to them uh, and have said to them for a long time, uh, that I'm a believer in a province uh, that supports opportunity for everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'll say to them that, um, you know, when I think about who used to protest out front of Christy Clark's office and who protests out front of my office, um, you know... I'm not excited that people feel so alienated from my office that they feel like they need to come and protest because I'll meet with any constituent on any issue. Um, but I don't feel terrible that, and it's just my words carefully, that you know people who have done really well, uh, they have homes that have uh, doubled in value in the last couple of years, tax-free, mm-hmm. and they're being asked to pay a fraction of a fraction of the value uh, that they've realized through that um, in order to do things like provide better education, healthcare, opportunities for people, um, housing for people who live in the streets. Um, you know, if that's what I'm going to be protested for, I, I feel okay about that. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I'd prefer everybody be universally thrilled with our <laughs> government and, and there'd be rose parades, but, uh, sure. but I do recognize the reality that governing is about choices and I feel okay about that choice. Yeah. I know I said that was the last one, but I got one more. <laughs> we, we, we've talked about politicians and other people from the opposition. I know when Andrew Wilkinson was here, he talked about people in governance. I want you to say a couple of nice things about one, multiple people on the other side in opposition. Sure. Like anybody? Anybody you want. Um, I think that, you know... <laughs> <laughs> have you have you rendered me speechless? <laughs> Here, here's what I'll I'll say about uh, about Mr. Wilkinson. I think it's sort of like a, a conspicuous person to choose because I think you know as the leader of the opposition, um, he's an important person for me to kind of recognize some of the things that he's done. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has an incredibly uh, difficult job as leader of the opposition. So the Liberals in power for 16 years. Um, expected to win the election, uh, lost a very disappointing and close election, and and in their opinion, didn't actually lose it um, because it required a coalition to unseat them. Sure. And is surrounded by people who are so bummed uh, and so unhappy to be in opposition. And their tent is big. It ranges from the extreme conservative, anti-climate change denier, anti-LGBT MLAs to some pretty like progressive small government, uh, socially progressive small government conservatives. Mm -hmm. Um, And I will say that he has done a remarkable job in holding those folks together. There has not been in two and a half years, which is shocking to me, any outward sign that I'm aware of, of uh, coup or of dissatisfaction uh, with um, the party 
generally or an attempt of someone else to try to become the leader or anything like that. And I know from behind the scenes in opposition and and frankly, being in some pretty dark days after we lost an election that everyone expected we were going to win in 2013, mm-hmm. that, that is a really hard place for a lot of MLAs to sit in opposition when they thought they were going to be sitting on the government sure. benches. So I will absolutely credit uh, Mr. Wilkinson with um, keeping all of his folks together. And the other thing I will credit him with is that Despite his on-air demeanor and his uh, general attitude in the legislature, after the legislature and outside of the media interviews, he uh, totally acts like a human being <laughs> to me. Uh, and uh, I try to to him as well. And I think that may be a hangover from law uh, for him. Hmm. Um, but you know, I, I appreciate that. I like that I don't have to like see him coming down the hall and go, Jesus, you know, what's he going to, uh, he just acts like a person, uh, which is nice that we can compartmentalize that some is of nice. the political fighting. Yeah, that is nice. And it goes back to that question I threw right off the bat, which is how much of this is theater, right? <laughs> yeah. And that's, I mean, that that is the, the challenge too, is I fundamentally disagree with so many of the things that... Uh, that he advocates for, but um, so it's not theater in that sense. But mm-hmm. at the same time, I mean, there you, you can you can maintain this fighting attitude and uh, all day, twenty four hours a day in Victoria in this like tiny little building where you run into people <laughs> all day. But it is exhausting, and it will sure. it will give you a heart attack or a stroke, guaranteed. And it's not a good idea. So um, it's helpful if we all just kind of recognize we're in the same building and doing. And and one of the things I do find um, just in general with people who are interested in politics is I find that, you know, it is possible to, to um, recognize that even someone who you disagree with politically, you can have a lot in common with in terms mm-hmm. of your experience of, uh, of, you know, what things you want to talk about and uh, what the key issues are and so on. And so um, I do enjoy when, uh, when we can have those conversations. Well, I think on that note, I just want to say, Mr. Reby, I am honored that you would spend so much time with me. I appreciate your candor. I appreciate your willingness to discuss issues that are so important to British Columbians and to indulge my curiosities about you and your vision personally. Can you put in a good word for the podcast to Premier John Horgan? That's my goal for 2020, to have him here. Consider it done, Mel. (laughs) Consider it done. Absolutely. (laughs) If people want to keep up to date with you or get involved with the party, where do they go? This is your chance to plug everything. Yeah. And let me apologize to... Uh, Twitter followers of mine uh, about how bad I've been. <laughs> like uh, on you had that great media. streak in the summer where one night you oh, were just on man, fire, <laughs> totally. And then I was like, just could not keep it up. Uh, so what I'm trying to do to make up for that is uh, I'm doing regular uh, Facebook Live mm-hmm. sessions. Did an experimental one uh, about uh, two weeks ago. Uh, I think it went really well, and I'm going to be doing it more regularly. So people should uh, should definitely. Uh, Dial me up on Facebook to uh, to follow those. And um, how does that work? Do people send in questions? Are they asking yeah, questions so like, live? Yeah, I've done a, a few Reddit AMAs, which I really enjoy. And um, and as much as I enjoy the Reddit AMAs, it's a it's a it's a very defined audience mm-hmm. um, and a very cool audience, but a very defined <laughs> audience. Uh, and Facebook reaches a lot of other folks too. So sure. I've kind of expanded that a little bit into cool. the, the Facebook world. So yeah, people write uh, little questions in the comment section and then I answer them and, and just talk uh, into the camera basically. And they just have to follow you on Facebook and then the time that it's live. Yeah, exactly. They go to your page. Yeah. We're still experimenting with times in terms of what's best for people, but, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, we'll post up notice the next time and uh, on, on that page. So. 
Well, again, thank you so much, Mr. Eby. This Thanks, was Mel. a pleasure. Next time, let's record a soothing yogic meditation for British Columbians. You How's that for a podcast idea? You and I will do a good stretch. You and I will do a good stretch before we start. It'll be awesome. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, he's the Attorney General of British Columbia, and I think he just broke the podcast. He is David Eby, and I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. Peace.